0: You walk into like a well-stocked theological library or bookstore, so not like a family Christian or Lifeway, but like an actual decent one that's going to have multiple shelves dedicated to theology. And inevitably, what happens is you have a shelf labeled theology, and then you've got the specialist theology. Queer theology gets its own shelf, or maybe Asian theology gets its own row, black theology, or womanist theology gets its own row. Well, that is just yelling for everybody to see, to hear. The default is straight white people, usually American, English, or German. They get to lay what the default of theology is, and then everything else is specialist.
1: to the Models We Live By, the podcast that explores how overcoming the mental models we all hold on to can help us grow to become better humans. Hey Anthony, how are you doing? Hey Mish,
0: I am, I'm good, I'm excited to be here, I'm very grateful that you've asked me to be on.
1: Absolutely. Um, You have been beaten by a cisgender white person already. I'm so sorry, but this is the only season that I have cis white men on. So that's an introduction.
0: (laughs) It is a rare (laughs) and dubious privilege. Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So tell me a little bit about the smog in DC. Is it as terrible? I'm in Herndon right now, and I walked outside for 10 minutes and I have a headache. Um, Is it as bad?
0: Yes, uh, I feel like it photographs worse than it looks in reality. Oh. And also, I had to use the Metro today and was masked and everything, but also managed to get a headache in like the 10 minutes I was outside. I talked to somebody earlier today in New York City, and it, it sounds miserable up north of us. But DC, we're struggling. We're we're, we're struggling.
1: Well, um, we are recording this two days before DC Pride starts.
0: yeah. Yeah, I'm, it sounds like the DC Pride Committee is planning on moving forward and just telling mm-hmm. people to take precautions. And I think about the only thing that's going to beat this level of mist and fog is a bunch of bunch of rainbows.
1: Yeah, exactly. The promise of Noah, that the ones that we're talking about, right? I, that's this what
0: is... I understand Pride to be all about, is yeah, a very long Noah. parade about Noah. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. Anyway... Nobody has a clue who you are and why in the world I would invite uh, a cis white person on this show. So before we get deep into the topic, can you tell a little bit about how you know me and who you are and what is your purpose?
0: Yeah, so the much less dubious privilege of being friends with Mish...
1: (laughs) <laughs> and
0: we both work together at the Table Church in DC. And I have been able to serve as one of its pastors for the past three years, starting in 2020. And the Table Church in DC is a affirming anti-racist non-denominational church. And I have, I've really enjoyed my time here. So I'm, I'm 36. I've been married for 14 years to my wife, Emily. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got two kids, Audrey and Wesley, ages seven and five who wrap up their school years next week. We did a little graduation ceremony for pre-K four today, which was very cute. And then, uh, you know, basically, I. Anything I can get my hands on, I become a nerd for. <laughs> so nerd meaning like un, unironically enthusiastic about. So yeah. Bible, nerd Star Wars, nerd Tolkien, nerd Apple and technology in general, piano and music. Uh, I, I just yes. nerd out about a lot of things. And then yeah, my purpose. Uh, I'm one of those people who has like a written like purpose statement in life.
1: Nerd, right? On nerd, that exactly. Yeah. Purpose
0: statement, nerd. Uh, so uh, my purpose distilled down is to teach a more beautiful gospel and to live a life worthy of imitation. So practically, that means thus far in my life, I've been dedicated to full-time mm-hmm. professional ministry, preaching, teaching, working with and for a church. Yeah. I, I want people to know the good news as actually good and not news that sounds kind of shitty. And then you have to convince yourself that it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yep. And then a life worthy of invitation has a bunch of ideas packed into it. But it means like, I I don't want to live a life of exhaustion. And I'm not a big fan of hustle. I want people to, I'm an Enneagram 3, so I care about what other people think. And I want people to look at my life and be (laughs) like, you know what, If, if my life ended up like that, it wouldn't be the worst thing. Uh, so I want to be able to enjoy my wife and my kids and my hobbies, as well as uh, the thing I get paid for, which right now is pastoral ministry.
1: Yes, yeah. that is that is awesome. Leave it to pastors to actually have a purpose statement for their own life. <laughs> I um, just had guests, uh, Sabrina, Chen, and Daniel. They, they were theologians, and of course, they, they had thoughts about purpose as well. They had derivatives of derivatives of derivatives, as theologians like to do. <laughs> yes, of course. And, uh, and then I also had a therapist on that said, I cannot give you my purpose, which was also the correct answer, because how can you be a good therapist? And claim that you have everything figured out. Uh, No, that's not how it works in life. So works. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very, I'm very impressed. And we're gonna get a little bit more deeper into the topic of why I specifically brought you on. But I do want to state for the people who are listening right now, I've been enjoying working with Anthony for a year. And I just have this good memory. We were at a conference in Denver. I think it's called With Collective. Is that is that mm-hmm. how it's called? Yeah, the With Collective. Yeah, something Collective. I think that sums up every single Christian conference. <laughs> yeah. yeah. After slap 2015,
0: add Collective, you're good. All I think <laughs> all based off of Red Collective. Everybody heard Red Collective. It was like, oh, we're yeah. gonna take that oh, idea.
1: That is that is nice. That is nice. And we sat at a table. And uh, I looked around me, and the majority was of color, and everyone was queer except Anthony. And I looked at Anthony. And I was like, "I'm, I'm so sorry. Are you, are you comfortable?" And you said something. I'm gonna butcher your words. You said, "White people have been comfortable for long enough," and mm-hmm. you left it there. And it made me think. It made me think because I was like, "Huh, what a." interesting thing to say one but i have now also seen you do that speak up when you need to speak up when you're not taking away the voices of queer people but amplifying them and be quiet when you're in jeopardy of taking away the voices of the marginalized so that's why you are here and i've been i've been eager to talk with you about this for a while this season has been in the planning for a while i thought am i going to put anthony in the season on intersectionality no i'm gonna put you in a season about theology because we have to nerd out right that's right yes thank you thank you for the
0: the kind anecdote and uh <laughs> and then yes let's be unironically enthusiastic about theology let's go
1: yeah The before i let you off the hook on the pastoral choice yeah. Uh, and, and your and your purpose. What sparked the choice for you to become a pastor and maybe also specifically to become a pastor at the table, which mm. is, you know, kind of like a Bible church on one hand, I'm sorry, and a super radical, queer loving, person of color loving church on the other hand.
0: Yeah. So when I think about wow, I got into this gig. I think there's like, there's two answers. There's sort of like the simple testimony answer. Simple testimony answer is like, I was 12 years old. I just accepted Jesus into my heart at a youth Mm -hmm. conference. Uh, We were singing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, real banger from 1999. (laughs) And uh, so I accepted Jesus into my heart. He became a friend. And then I started a, a Bible study on the book of Exodus at my middle school and fell in love with teaching the Bible. And I thought, huh. I could do this full time. And so 12 years old, had the lucky, very fortunate, like, I know what I'm going to do with my life and basically followed through. I think then there's the more complicated, like therapist's couch answer, which mm-hmm. gets into life story, which we won't get into all today. But I was adopted when I was 13. Prior to that, I had been in the foster system. I lived with some family who eventually put me in back in the foster system Before that, I had lived with a mentally ill biological mom who abused me. And I think that all led in Mm. part to this chronic need to be liked and admired. Yeah. Um, And when I was 12, all the people that I liked and admired were pastors. I had these very influential Bible preachers and youth pastors in my life that I loved and, and who, you know, poured into me and, and cared for me when I was a pretty lost, scared little boy. So I thought, well, if these people can be liked and admired, then what better career for me? (laughs) Done. And so now I feel like I've spent the past 18 years of my life, both, both feeling like really affirmed in my calling to ministry (laughs) as well as really questioning, like, did it come from the healthiest place? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, but also believing that God's able to squeeze some good out of that anyway, even if Oof. even if it weren't the purest of intentions at the time.
1: Yeah. And, and knowing me with my theology of ambiguity, I would say, let's do both. Let's do both. Right. It can be both uh, not coming from a good place and it can be coming from a good place. Yeah. And still eventually be redeemed.
0: Yeah. And then for the table specifically, my wife, Emily, and I had moved to Iowa in 2010 and did ministry at a church out there for a decade and started our family there and was fortunate to be mentored by some really great pastors and avoid a lot of the kind of shipwrecks that I'd seen and a lot of my peers coming mm-hmm. out of Bible college and seminary. Yeah. Um, but by the time our kids were... Getting close to school age, uh, and especially after the 2016 election and the rise of Trump and the sort of the the unveiling of uh, white Christian nationalism, it became more and more clear that like man, it's going to be really tough to stay in Northwest Iowa as a family and as pastors. Yeah. So I yeah started looking for a new position in 2018. And it took Mm -hmm. about two years (laughs) to find a church that uh, lined up with Emily and I's values and theological convictions. And Mm. when we moved out here to D.C., it was not our intent to get to the East Coast. Both both of our families are still in uh, the Midwest and Indiana. But we were so sort of enamored and captured by the vision of the table church to be this place of radical friendship and welcome all while like you said there is still a little bit of bible church in there like you got a bunch of people who who can mm-hmm. really get rowdy for jesus in a worship set and they Let's can go really nerd out over a bible study like those two things combined we're like it's we can't say no so here we i are. love
1: that i think there is definitely a hefty need <laughs> for bible church-esque mm-hmm. places where not only queer people and people of color, and, you know, let's just say the marginalized Mm -hmm. can come in and feel safe, but be an integral part of the community, and the vision, and the elders, and heck, sometimes the entire worship band is of color and queer. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's a beautiful thing. It's good. So on that topic, you write a, a pretty solid sermon every now and then. Um, I, I enjoy very much listening to them. How do you do that? What's that process? Um, that's you write a sermon, but you have people like Mish in your mind Hmm. or people that are in the congregation, in your congregation. How, how does that process go?
0: Yeah. So I, as been as been said, I I love to nerd out in the Bible. I can Mm -hmm. spend time in the Hebrew and the Greek, and we can talk about verb declensions and present perfect participles and get really excited (laughs) about first century context. And, you know, honestly, for a long time, my sort of imagined audience for a sermon was maybe my parents, like sort of people who had been in the pews all their lives and Mm -hmm. knew lots of things about the Bible and needed something that would be, you know, interesting and surprising, that sort of thing. Right. and then, you know, as a pastor, I don't feel like you're fully doing your job if you're not hanging out with the people in your congregation. So I would, you know, once I started getting here, first it was over Zoom and then the pandemic transitioned and it was getting lunches and coffees and dinners and small groups. And yeah, you start actually hearing the stories of people, um, people trapped in abusive marriages or right. people who have parents who are unwilling to come to their marriage because it's to someone of the same sex or somebody who has a miscarriage or somebody who is uh, verbally or physically attacked because they're Black or Asian or queer or Latin or whatever. And then, I, you know, as a, as a sermon writer, I think, well, I really like those three paragraphs about the origins of the Essenes and the Qumran community and how their development of the Dead Sea Scrolls plays into the Johannine desert tradition. <laughs> but maybe that's not going to be the best thing to preach this Sunday. <laughs> Yes. And seriously, like, I, I'm sure there's probably proof of this, like, in my text editors of like paragraphs that get written and then deleted because, like, there's the nerdery mm. of like, you know, all of this stuff that pastors and theologians st- study and research. Yeah. And then it gets back down to like, but what are we actually trying to communicate about God's love, about the gospel being actually good news to people who are coming from, you know, quite honestly, really hurt. Or, or broken or right. just hard places. So that's often the cycle of sermon writing of, you know, true academic drivel <laughs> all the way yeah. to let's communicate something that's, that's meaningful and helpful. And that's a question I often as, just ask of like, is this helpful? The other thing I keep in mind too, is like, I get to ride this first, I get to ride most of the first class privilege seats in this nation straight white cis upper middle class educated male which means I have this responsibility that I've got to do a couple responsibilities I've got to do in my sermons which is um, I've got to identify and name my power and, yeah. and leverage it for the sake of others and then I owe it to my congregation to be you know in their stories. And hearing their stories and their context, because if I'm only ever preaching to myself, then I'm I'm missing out on the majority mm. of every population there is, the world's population, and this city's population, and this church's population. Yeah. Uh, so I, in order to be a good exegete and a good, here's a good seminary word, homiletician, a good preacher, is to really know your people. I think as Rob Bell years and years ago said that if you're pa- if you're a preacher and you're struggling to come up with like examples or illustrations for your sermons, that means you're failing as a pastor because you're not hanging out with your people. And so if you can't think of like, oh man, I don't know how this applies or a good story that it relates to, that means like get out of your office and go start hanging out with people, please. Yeah. And really practically As a sermon writer, that means like the amount of time I've spent writing sermons has dramatically gone down as like a 22-year-old to a 36-year-old or 22-year-old me is like spending 20 hours a week. And now it's
1: like, you know
0: two, three, four at most, because to me, the act of sermon writing is like being with people.
1: That makes sense. So that kind of explains the part about how you change your perception and perspective on who you're preaching to by hanging out with them and making sure that the sermon is tangible and practical for the people who are in your congregation, who have different lived experiences, who have different backgrounds. But obviously, we still, let me just say for myself, I learn a lot from you when I listen to your sermons. So that's great. Now let's dive in a level deeper. What, what do you think needs to change in modern hermeneutics in order to make the text accessible for today's context
0: so yeah for the sake for the sake of our listeners who humanudics basically the art of interpretation and yeah the clobber verses is such an interesting example because the clobber verses in other words that list of you know eight to ten verses that people use to justify homophobia and anti-trans mental models yeah um it assumes that that's home base that you start with the assumption the homophobic transphobic ways of interpretation are the default. And then yeah. you've got to argue your way out of it. And I think hermeneutics, you you have to begin by questioning the default. You walk into like a well-stocked theological library or bookstore. So not like a family Christian or Way, but like an actual decent one that's yeah. going to have multiple shelves dedicated to theology. And yeah. inevitably yeah. what happens is you have a shelf labeled, theology. And then you've got the specialist theology. Queer theology gets its own shelf, or maybe Asian theology gets its own row. Black theology or womanist theology gets its own row. Well, that is just yelling for everybody to see, to hear. The default is straight white people. Usually American, English, or German, they get to lay what the default of theology is. And yeah. then everything else is specialist. And that's that's a really bad assumption. Like if anybody if anybody, if anybody gets to be the default, It's like, it's Jews, they get the default and everybody else is doing (laughs) contextual theology based off of, for for Christians and Judaism, right? Mm -hmm, Like the -hmm. the Jews get to be the default of like, well, yeah, Christianity sprung from Israel and Palestine and Judaism. (laughs) Uh, And then everybody else from the Americans to the Germans to Africans, everybody else is doing contextual theology. And as as long as you don't, uh, if you get that wrong, then I think every approach is going to start in the wrong place. Yeah. I think the other thing I'd say too is just like we're still trapped in the after effects of the enlightenment which has this laser-lock focus on "quote unquote absolute truth." And wow. the the wonderful thing that postmodernist philosophy and hermeneutics brought to us was not even necessarily questioning the existence of truth, which I think is a misunderstanding of what postmodern thinking does. Mm-hmm. Postmodernism does not question the, the existence of truth. What it brings to light is the idea of uh, situatedness or your perspective. Right. If, if I'm on the east side of the mountain and you're on the west side of the mountain and we each paint a picture, the mountain's going to look very different. The mountain exists. That's not necessarily what's being questioned. Maybe you need to question that, but it's not necessarily what's being questioned. <laughs> it's about situatedness and perspective. And ever since the Enlightenment and the the beginning of like critical historical methods of looking at the Bible, they're helpful for understanding background and context until they're not. And so those, right. until those same critical historical methods are used to, enable chattel slavery and enable genocide and the right. holocaust. So I think you got to go back to the the ways that the rabbi the Jewish rabbis have been looking at scripture for millennia and the way that the early church did it after the first century church died off which is looking at metaphor and allegory and have a willingness to talk about the ways that scripture bumps up against e- itself and argues with itself yeah. and, and needs uh, a hermeneutic of love, na- neighbor love, in order mm-hmm. to come up with meaning.
1: That's great. A hermeneutic of love already begs being okay with discomfort, right? Right. If if we're asked to love our neighbor and we go back to where that verse is based on like the alien that is a visitor in a land that's not their own, just like we were aliens Mm -hmm. in a land that was not our own, you Mm -hmm. know, you don't have to be comfortable with people. That's not what we're asked to do. We're asked to love. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's okay to not be comfortable around people. It's okay to not be comfortable around me, for example. <laughs> it's fine. So I like that love implies a sense of ambiguity. And I also on on the topic that you broached on earlier where we have a base level of assumption or assumption How do I say this? A base assumption level. There we go. I can speak this language. (laughs) (laughs) We have a base assumption level of like, this is what everybody believes. And the frustrating part is that, yes, you're right with this obsession of absolutes for absolutes. And then not just the obsession of absolutes, also expecting that your interlocutor, your conversation partner has the same base truth and therefore that we can have a conversation but there is already no conversation possible with me if you say believe that homosexuality is a term that's used in scripture and i call it an anachronism we can already not have a conversation we need to have a conversation about that not about which verse says what so that's that's definitely been frustrating Anthony Parrott is a co-pastor of The Table Church in
0: D.C. If you're in the D.C. area and are looking for a place that is radically welcoming and inclusive, be sure to check them out at thetablechurch.org. Yeah, I think there seems to be a real close relationship between a love of absolute truth and a need for uniformity and conformity, and what you said about love—love love implies difference. Love implies there is some distance between me and the object of my love, the person whom I'm loving. I mean, this is the this is really base level philosophical sort of stuff there, but it's the. Martin Bu- Buber's uh, "I and Thou." There is a distance between me and that which is not me, and the relationship that I set between myself and the the thing that is not myself uh, yeah. can be a loving relationship. But that loving relationship implies that there is difference, and as soon as you try to squish that difference out of you and your the object of your love, mm-hmm. it's no longer love. It's a demand for uniformity and conformity. And yeah, philosophically speaking, I do believe in absolute truth. But when absolute truth becomes a weapon to therefore beat people into conformity, you've left love behind
1: somewhere. I mean, in life, we can strive for absolutes. We can strive for saying, hey, let's agree that gravity is an absolute truth. We are being pulled towards Earth. We're not being pushed towards Earth. Let's at least start with that. Okay. Now we can start coming up with some formulas. Mm-hmm. It's fine. <laughs> we can do that, even if that means that later we we have to adjust it. That's right. that's still fine. You can still say this is my absolute truth, and then later say, you know what, I was wrong. Yeah. That's a that's a big big thing to say. To be honest, uh, <laughs> right makes me respect the person more. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, how do you see this play out in? In Like growing up, we already touched on a couple of hot topics in just, what, 30 minutes. But how do you see this growing up? What, what bizarre outcomes have you seen certain types of hermeneutics bring forth or certain types of bad theology?
0: Yeah. So growing up from the age of 10 forward uh, with a family that would end up adopting me, we were very evangelical Christian very conservative and right up to and probably past the line of fundamentalism. My my dad didn't buy into all of the fundamentalist stuff, but my homeschooling curriculum came from Pensacola Christian Academy, a Becca homeschooling stuff, yeah. which was very fundamentalist, and I bought into ninety percent of it. I had a, my first Bible was the In uh, Times Prophecy Study Bible.
1: Ooh, uh, spicy!
0: Yeah, by <laughs> by John Haggy. And I owned all like 16 of the left behind novels. They kept churning out and and loved them. And, did not, you know, didn't believe in female pastors. And yeah. I think my capstone, like senior year project for high school was about how Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought a, brought about, began the end of American greatness. <laughs> like Ooh. all, just all, all the, all the stuff. So I, I don't know, as I'm looking out my window and I see the haze from the wildfires in Canada and just the cascade of crises that the world seems to be facing uh, I think a lot about in times theology because it's my conviction that what you think about the end of the world affects how you kind of live and move in the world today. Hmm. And I had a youth pastor who like faked a rapture for the youth group right after 9-11, faked an attack on the U.S. Uh, that we had to like <laughs> to live oh. through. And there, there's this idea that like, well, according to first Peter, God is going to burn the world up. Like, okay, we, we joked about the rainbow flags and the promise <laughs> of Noah, right? And that was, yeah. always, that was always the thing of like, well, God promised Noah that he would never flood the world again. Yeah. But he is going to burn it up. <laughs> like, what a weak-ass <laughs> promise, God. Like, what? And so the idea being like, okay, God, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to rapture his people. And then the world is going to burn. And so if climate change isn't a hoax, which most likely it is, according to this theology, but even if it's not, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> it's God's intent. So let her burn. And that's where bad theology and bad hermeneutics can lead to like, we, we can talk about the personal and like spiritual trauma stuff, but like on a global level,
1: yes, yes.
0: More and more people are experiencing the effects of climate change because of, you know, rapture theology, which is only a couple hundred years old. And mm-hmm. that some research project I want st- to get into someday is there's this really tight link between Christian Zionism, the idea that we need to rebuild the temple and st- restart the sacrifice system, <laughs> Christian Zionism and anti-Semitism. Like, they are tied together, which is like this dark, dark irony. And for a teenager like me, it was all like, let's get out the church and figure out the seven-year tribulation and where the rapture happens and uh, are you going to be left behind and all the fear and shame-based stuff. And then it grows in magnitude to climate change is a hoax and there's nothing that you can do about petroleum consumption and just let her burn. Oof.
1: I mean... Yes, because the narrative towards queer people has even changed from, hey, you can be disc- you can be uncomfortable around me, but you could still gotta love me towards no, you probably were not Christian to start with. Mm-hmm. as in like, uh, does my salvation depend on me being being trans? I think it was a easier conversation to have for me 10 years ago than today because now more often I get to hear yeah, but you were not Christian to start with. Oof. which which is irrelevant right uh, are you stating are you stating that you have to be straight in order to go to heaven and sheesh that's a pretty big bold thing to to adopt. Yeah, you have to do a lot of interesting <laughs> exegetics in order to get to that conclusion. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, yes, that has been more that conversation has become more vile because now we're talking about this has this has to do with your salvation.
0: And that's another great example of starting your hermeneutic in the wrong place. What is God's activity in the world? Is God's activity in the world just a giant rescue operation operation to get people off of earth and into some basically non embodied heaven or is God doing something on earth right now to bring about healing and reconciliation and all of that. And the way you answer that question really changes the conversation about like, well, are they saved? I I don't, I don't know if that's what God is asking. Uh, Are they going to heaven when they die? Like that is just not a thing. That's not a question that ever came out of jesus's lips it's and it's definitely not a, a hebrew idea if you read through uh the hebrew bible and the tanakh like you're not seeing this obsession with post-mortem experience it's all about yeah. the here and now and your uh your offspring like the people who come after you so to even begin the conversation with well if you're not straight then you're you're not going to heaven. To which a well-theologically informed queer person would be like, "That's not the point, anyway." <laughs>
1: it's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I started calling salvation a bonus, just mm. to, just to get it on the conversation level of where it should be. Yeah. Being ritually clean has been an obsession of me early on in life, with mm-hmm. a misunderstanding of what it means to be ritually clean and ritually unclean, or Levitical uh, scriptures, right? And and what that exactly mean when when something is an abomination? What does that actually mean? What what is the differences between all the sacrifices? And Je- did Jesus die for all sacrifices? Like did Jesus die for the praise offerings, for example, right? <laughs> like uh, or just the burnt and sin offerings i want answers and i wanted them when i was young and it's an interesting topic how we've gotten here where i don't hear often anymore the the conversation of sin being being connected to ritual cleanliness mm-hmm. and and that idea of jesus dying for us and us dying with christ like a baptism and getting out of our baptismal, how do you call it basin? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then now we are ritually clean and we can appear before God. Boom. That was my conversion moment. Like that's that's what it means. And I know this is different for everybody. I'm not saying this is the this is what it means, but it never kind of got away from me that God always heard me and God was always with me even though I was, or am, or whatever, ritually unclean, right? But besides yeah. the fact, but the symbolic nature of being buried with Christ and rising with Christ so we can stand in front of God, that is a beautiful thing versus a, oh, Mish, you're trance. Mm-hmm. You're not saved. I.e., when you say saved and when you say salvation, are you talking about ritual cleanliness mm-hmm. or are you talking about going to heaven? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still a question today.
0: <laughs> Put this in the, uh, the 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 bonus members only content. So <laughs> early church, you'd have these baptismal basins and the baptismal candidates were often naked. They would be, they would co- go down in and then you'd have this dual metaphor. So that you have the metaphor mm-hmm. of being buried with Christ and rising again. And yeah. the baptismal basins were often vulva shaped. <laughs> and, and this was intentional.
1: Yes, let's go. This was intentional
0: (laughs) uh, for a couple different reasons. One, the wound on the side of Christ was often depicted in art as a very vulva shaped, typically feminine anatomy uh, sort of shape. So it had something, it was still related to this death of Christ and his Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. his, uh, crucifixion. And also it was this idea of, of being born again. And so the early church, like in their writings, like this is like explicitly in the writings, would talk about like being born through that vaginal canal of baptism through the the divine God. So (laughs) I I know at some point you're going to talk about queer queer theology if you haven't already, Um, but like there is some deeply queer theology going on in baptism that like, you know, the average person getting baptized down at a Southern Baptist church like is completely unaware of. Yeah. But it's still true. <laughs> like the yeah. reason that about yeah, bap- exactly. the baptismal font is shaped that way is because it's related to to birth and the idea of divine rebirth. Mm. Uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I no, like it. There's some bonus content for you.
1: I think we should bring back the volva basin and let everybody be baptized naked again. I mean, mm-hmm. how can you be fully immersed if if you have underpants on? <laughs>
0: these are the true questions
1: listen (laughs) this is the way oh no that's 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 a different different universe (laughs) (laughs) so say we all so say we (laughs) oh that's so funny Okay, I'd love to switch gears and talk about my favorite part ever with this entire season because do people have pet peeves? (laughs) Do people have pet peeves that they would like to talk about? And I enjoy listening to them. So it kind of fits together with what we already said. What kind of things have you seen growing up? And what kind of things do you see today that are an outcome of bad theology? But also what are what are some pet peeves that you would just like like to slap someone's hand off the? Just, just stop it! That's that's not that's not it. So,
0: like I said, I spent a good year and a half, two years looking for a job, and so I just devoured just about every church website I could. <laughs> And I, I gained a, an AI-like ability to get onto a church's <laughs> belief page and just like instantly know what kind of church this was. So there's a couple things you would see on a church belief page, such as the Bible never contradicts itself. And, you know, this, this is the Mental Models podcast, right? So the Models yes. We Live By. So th- there's a mental model that says, here's this library of books written by 50 to 60 authors over 3,000 years. And here's what you need to know about it, according to this theology. They never changed their mind. They never disagreed about anything. Nothing. Nothing ever. It's amazing. And like, and that, I mean, that's honestly what was said. I mean, this was the inerrancy sort of camp that I was brought up in. Isn't it so amazing that God, through these people, wrote a book that in all of its, uh, whatever it is, thousand chapters, like never, never has a contradiction, never disagrees. Well, of course, that's going to create a mental model for you that you can never change your mind and you can never disagree. And that there's never going to be anything new to learn about God. Ouch. So then that's how church and theological systems of dominance and control get created, because we already have all the answers. We will let you know the answers. That's our responsibility. And then if the, if the authors of the Bible never change their mind, who the hell do you think you are to change your mind? Yes. So, I mean, we've, we've probably leaped beyond pet peeve area, but like, oh, yeah, as let's soon go. as I see that, Oh, the Bible never contradicts itself. You have you have lopped yourself off from basically 3,000 years of Jewish tradition and 1900 years of Christian tradition. that says that the Bible is a library of documents that you're meant to wrestle with. I mean, it's in the name Israel, right? Israel wrestles with God. Uh, You go read some theologians anytime before the Enlightenment, anytime before John Calvin, anytime before um, like Spurgeon, like go start reading and like you will see the wrestling and the arguing and the debating and the, Mm. oh, look at how this changes that and how Hosea contradicts Elijah and how Ezekiel contradicts. Like Ezekiel almost didn't get put into the Tanakh because it contradicted, contradicted Leviticus and Moses so many times. But then the rabbis said, like, and you can go read some of the transcripts of this, like, well, you know, but this is sort of our jam. So we're going to put it in anyway. Who, who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, even Jesus, you've heard it said, I say to you, and you can it, like, there is, whether that's a direct contradiction, whatever you want to call it, there is clearly movement
1: mm-hmm.
0: in the way that we approach and understand God Yes. and to just say no never ever you have completely lost your ability to grow up as a person a human being much less a christian
1: yeah oh my everything it is so funny to see the degrees of problems with that idea like from of course there's no no disagreements Mm-hmm. within the book which is which is hard but when we find an error it typically we get a response yeah but it's in or in its original autographs it was fine yeah <laughs> but right. i mean then what i find even more funny in this is like do you know how people that wrote the bible interpreted the Bible. like think about uh, what's that what's that passage Hebrew 7 where the statement is that when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of its ancestor, in the loins, some mm-hmm. translators put in there, which is that ancient idea that we are all mini Mishas and Anthonys before we're actually born. But we were already there. But it's so clear that, that there is a base belief that we don't have anymore. Yeah. And it's and it's funny. It's It should enrich us. It should be fun to read like oh look that's was an interesting way to read the bible
0: (laughs) yeah exactly john walton old testament professor says the bible was written for us but it was not written to us right and if you try to insert 21st century ideas into a first century or 10th century bce text you're gonna run into real problems real fast because no we don't believe we don't think well one yeah the ancient uh ideas around procreation where like, yeah, there's the, the the sperm are little miniature versions of everybody who's the cop. And we don't really think that's, that anymore, nor should we. Like, that's not, like, that's that's not how it works. Yeah, it's yeah. weird. If you enjoy the content on the Models We Live By podcast, you'll enjoy the content on jointheresonance.com. The Resonance is a church consulting agency that also provides a platform for leaders and learners to meet each other, have open discussion, and continue their learning with original online courses.
1: And and also what I thought was funny, what you said, that when I was looking for jobs as a pastor, I had something similar, like already when... When the statement was the Bible as the first, this is what we believe, right? Yes, if, if the Bible the, is the top. is the top. Like, what happened to God being the top? I know mm-hmm. I'm being nitpicky now, but you're right. You, you're you absolutely start seeing not. You, you start seeing these tendencies in, in websites and in like, in order for God to be true, there needs to be an errancy. That's kind of like what it sounds like, but that's obviously yeah. not true. I can believe in God because guess what? Belief is is belief.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. There's so many assumptions built into, if you see the Bible listed first on a website, then it's going to, it's, it's smacking of it's it's, it's giving Bible all the tree and Bible <laughs> is the fourth person of the Trinity. And <laughs> I mean, all you have to do is you I just like have to feel, too. you have to feel really bad for the first, you know, three, four centuries of Christians who didn't have a Bible.
1: Because that's right. Like, that's right.
0: Their belief in God apparently is impossible. You have to feel really bad for every person who is illiterate or every person who does not have access to a Bible because their faith is yeah. invalid. Like no, this is no, this yeah. is not what our faith is built. Small
1: on. Small sacrifice though, small sacrifice. Because ultimately, so much more people are saved by their sacrifices. Is it? <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. This. Uh, yeah. This. Yeah. Uh, if we follow the train of thoughts. Yes. <laughs>
0: All right, I've got more pet peeves.
1: Oh, bring it on. <laughs> um, bring it on. <laughs>
0: um, again, this is probably too broad of a concept to be considered a pet peeve, but uh, I'm just going to throw in Calvinism. <laughs> just stop. <just laughs> a-
1: <laughs> the entirety. <laughs> just the entirety. <laughs> now, let me
0: Let me caveat. I worked for 10 years at a church that belonged to the Reformed Church in America. The Reformed Church in America is the Dutch expression of Reformed theology in the United States. So Presbyterianism would be the Scottish expression. The Reformed Church is the Dutch expression. So, you know, holler holler to your Dutch mothers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and Reformed theology is much broader than just the writings of John Calvin. So it's always worth keeping in mind. And Reformed theology is much, 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 much more than, I will say, the drivel of John Piper and Mark Driscoll, okay? Mm -hmm. They are the loudest and most successful, but also probably the poorest spokespeople for Calvinism. Yes. That said, I think Calvinism has won over the religious imagination of America because so many of sort of our cliches around the Christian faith come from a simplistic calvinistic way of looking at theology. So statements like God has a plan for your life, God is in control, God never fails or never loses, everything happens for a reason. And, you know, even the simplistic ways of understanding like the book of Romans being all about salvation in scare quotes uh and going to heaven when you die. Like you can yes. all bring that back to a very calvinistic way of looking at election predestination all of that and i list it as a pet peeve like <laughs> it's also probably a larger life project to be just like can we can we can we be done with this failed theological experiment but it's a pet peeve because it turns into the default for even some of the most like thoughtful progressive radical folks i know they get pulled back to this default of um What's God's will for my life? As right. if God is the author of every single decision. God is in control. God, you know, the, everything happens for a reason. And it's one of those things that just has to be constantly drawn out like poison out of people. Because it creates an image of a God that is basically just toying with us. Oh. And can it cannot be trusted.
1: Double predestination.
0: I mean, that goes, back, that goes back to the good news that's actually shitty news, but you have to convince yourself that it's good of (laughs) God loves the world so much that some unknown number of people are saved and everyone else is damned. And this is for God's glory. This is the John Piper Christian hedonism. Everything is for God's glory, including the eternal torment of people. And like David Bentley Hart is, you know, spares no insult for this sort of thinking of like, how twisted do you have to let your mind become think that the eternal torment of people is good news
1: yeah exactly and for 15 percent of the world's population that is white (laughs) yeah uh, let's go right Mm -hmm. yes yes absolutely i remember that i got so confused by the parable of the zizanion that's the greek word okay what is that darnell is that's what it's in english like the wheat and the weed. Oh, chaff, <laughs> wheat and chaff. Yeah, you if you read it and you read it very, very, very slowly, there's a lot of questions to have on like who is who. Mm-hmm. Is is the field owner God? Is the field owner Jesus? Is the enemy demons? Is the enemy just nasty people? But if you read very closely and you go through these passages, you're like, does that mean that there's because the the, the property of a zizanion, <laughs> the Greek word, let's just go with that, is that it looks like uh it looks like wheat until it doesn't. So it looks like wheat, but when it doesn't anymore, it can infect your entire field. So it's a very nasty prank. Let's put it that way. If that's your annual income, and Oh, everything looks great. And then as they start growing, they start to discolor and it's typically too late. You can't save your field anymore because they infect everything and everything needs to be going away. So the landowner takes big risk in this parable of like, you know what, let it grow and we'll take it out in the end. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that means that who are those zizanions? Are those Empty shells that are meant to go towards extermination for the glory of God. Pretty nasty stuff. Because if you take a Calvinistic approach to that verse, that's a very, very proper way of interpreting that. Yeah, you you right. could you could technically say, Oh, then they would infect the rest of the field, and that's us. We are sinners who need to be cleansed by yada, 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 right? Right, right, (laughs) You can go very, very far in that parable. But yes, that's a pretty, pretty nasty story. Guess what? You may be an empty shell. You may never enter the glory of the kingdom of heaven, both here on earth and in the future.
0: And (laughs) that goes back to your,
1: what's your underlying
0: assumption? Is your underlying assumption of God, a ultimately sort of capricious... Mm. You know, God will, God will do what God will do. And if whatever God does, that's, that's loving, which then makes all attempts of using language to understand God utterly pointless.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a trap, right? Because I always say trap in this podcast, but it is a trap because if you then say God is sovereign and then you say, you hear someone say, yeah, that can't be God. Oh, listen, listen. No, God is sovereign. So you'll just have to accept it. But what if I don't want to see that in a God? Well, then you obviously don't understand. It's a trap. It's like endless, endless being stuck.
0: Which if, yeah, if you take a very, let's say, imperial mindset on sovereignty, Sovereignty oh. equals absolute control and getting my way. Yeah. Then okay. Then I suppose then we, that's that. Then God can do whatever God wants. If sovereignty looks like Philippians two and kenosis, the emptying of the divine self, and looks like uh, sacrificial love that wins, um, sacrificial love for the sake of others. Then I, this is this is John's theology of glory in the gospel of John, Jesus is very clear. I will be glorified. The father will glorify me and everybody's amped up. All right, let's see it. Let's see the glory and the glory looks like crucifixion. So if your theology of God has not caught up to that, God is sovereign. God gets what God wants. It's all for God's glory. God's going to torture most of humanity for God's glory. Then you have sub christian sub cruciform theology. You, your definition of sovereignty is still stuck somewhere behind Mm. in imperial thought and is not caught up to what jesus shows us what sovereignty looks like which is sacrificial love for the sake of others
1: i like that so what do we do about this (laughs) we got pet peeves we got bad theology we have bad hermeneutics we have so much correction if you will to do it yeah what is the approach? How are we going to do this?
0: You know, I think for many, it looks for, for folks like me, uh, it's going to look like getting out of the way. It is just about a crime that I did not learn about womanist or queer theology until after I left seminary. The money, the publishing dollars, the oxygen in theology all get sucked up by straight white men, which means that the straight white men who have the positions and the paychecks and the publishing deals, they need to take some responsibility and they, we, I, to lift up and point to all the things that formally get categorized as special to theology, black, queer, Asian, disabled, you name it. Mm -hmm. Because that is in fact the majority of, of the world and of Christianity. And it is deeply unjust that the minority, the straight, white, cis male, is sucking up all of that power. And so if the theologians better start looking at the words of Jesus in terms of reversal, last shall be first, first shall be last. So, and that, yeah, like, like I said earlier, the default can no longer be just white American English and German. And then, you know, I think I do want to say that while three paragraphs in a sermon about the Essenes and the Cuman community out in the desert may not be a good sermon (laughs) uh, to someone whose loved one has died. Theology also can be helpful in healing. How we think of God is so important for how we see the world, how we see others, how we see ourselves. And just as bad theology kills, good theology can heal. Trauma can be healed from. We can have better images of God. Which means that we have to be willing, as uh, one of my favorite articles says, if your God is not God, fire him. Male masculine pronoun intended. If your God is not God, (laughs) fire him. Meaning there has to be an openness and a willingness to be wrong which goes back to what what we were talking about with inerrantist theology of the bible
1: absolutely it's interesting because you have not heard the other episodes that at this point haven't aired yet but an episode that will air before this episode the answer to how do we course correct was the remedy for bad theology is good theology so you say something very similar and i like that I like that because it was Sabrina Chan that said, we too often look at bad theology and it's very easy to get caught up in it and complain about it because one it's fun and two it's a psychological loop when you complain you find other people that complain and it and it's good it's cathartic but you can go a little bit too far in it but so so i like the positive message of we don't have to fight necessarily yes we have to get out of the way sometimes yes we sometimes have to stand up and be very 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 loud but but in essence the the pure answer to to course correction is to evangelize good theology.
0: Yeah, and I think I, the only sort of like anxiety stirring up in me at the moment is if that good theology, the course correction, is still very hierarchical and still yeah. obsessed with absolutism and absolute truth, then you haven't gone far enough and that can i've seen that tendency i've seen that tendency in myself of i finally have the right answer And now I'm going to beat everybody over the head with it, which means I I haven't found the right answer. (laughs) Like, uh, so whatever new forms of theology and ways of speaking about God that we're going to evangelize, they need to be radically non-hierarchical. They need to be taking the margins and making the margins the center. And they, I mean, there is some just real basic like Sunday school lessons in here of like, be slow to speak, quick to listen, which probably means... You know, Western theology is often obsessed with words. So what does it mean to embrace some of the wordless theology of traditionally like our Orthodox and, you know, mystical Jewish siblings and our Buddhist siblings and like Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. find ways of doing theology that aren't just so word-based? Sheesh, that's
1: some good stuff. We got to talk a lot about a lot of things in one hour. And I'm certain, I mean... You and I both know that we can talk about this for hours. That's why I'm happy that we can finally just air part of our weird conversations that we have on a weekly basis. Yeah. People come work for the table. Um, (laughs) This is literally what our staff meetings look like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I do want to finish, finish up uh, before I get to the last question. The, the appreciation of understanding that the moment that you think that you got it, you need to self self-reflect and, and you know that I'm a, a fan of very white and very male George Lindbeck. Um, may he rest in peace, but he would he would agree because theology is only contextual for the context that we are in currently. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what we have figured out that works for our context today, most likely will not work for our context 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. And we will have to do this all over again and again and again. And that's the beauty of having an almost open source astral planes (laughs) version of theology. Amen to that. Amen to that. (laughs) So before I let you go, what would you say? to all the millions of Anthonys out there. <laughs>
0: God, God help us if there are millions of us. Oh, geez.
1: At uh, least 15% of the world is, <laughs> is an Anthony. No, no, no. Seven and a half percent. What's the what's the male-female, uh, male-female intersex play. NB division between uh, all the white Anthonys? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. This is <laughs> a good question.
0: It's <laughs> a good question. Okay. So I got two answers. To the, to the 18-year-old me, I would say you don't fucking know it all. <laughs> but honestly, I think I think the 18 year old me was clinging to certainty because almost everything else in my life to that point had been so uncertain.
1: Mm, yeah, oh, right.
0: And I would encourage the 18 year old me to release his grip uncertainty and discover beauty instead. And then to all the other nerdy pastors and theologians out there right now, I think I'd say start replacing your books with relationships, even virtual ones. There are so many tools and opportunities now to not just hang out with people just like you or with the same similar life story. As you. So, you know, start doing an audit of your Twitter feed and your podcast feed and your bookshelf and your mentors and start, you know, just being honest and asking, like, why does everyone look and sound just like me? <laughs>
1: It's a good, it's good inventory. I think inventories are needed in order to grow and stagnation is my biggest fear. I am going to be very clear there. There's Mm. no bigger fear than I have than stagnation. Mm, I relate to that. I relate to that real hard.
0: (laughs) So yeah, you got to start, you got to start hanging out with and hang out. You can define that as, as widely as you want. Hang out online, hang out in person, hang out in books, hang out, whatever. But start hanging out with people who make you go, ah, like make make you start tilting your head and feel a little uncomfy yeah uh, cuz that's where the
1: that's where the good stuff happens isn't that how we all grew that's how that's that growth almost always comes from discomfort exactly well thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast so much appreciated
0: yes this has been this has been a joy i've i've been so looking forward to this and it was <laughs> it was better than i thought it was going to be so
1: <laughs> oh, you thought you thought I was going to be a terrible host? No, is that, no, no, no. Is that what I I'm was, hearing?
0: I thought it was going to be good, and it was, it was better than good. It
1: was great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is awesome. This has been the Models We Live By podcast. I want to thank you all for listening. And it would be great if you can give me a follow on TikTok or Instagram. My username is EdsMishmanEssen on both platforms. The music is by AGST and the song is called Flaw. Go listen to their music. Next episode is with Liz Edmond, who is the author of Queer Virtues. Until then. <clears throat>